People devote their lives to all kinds of different things. Some of the strangest things people devote their lives to can be found in the Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know if you've ever flipped through there, but there are some strange things in there. Uh, People, they devote years of their life and their fortunes and then put up with tremendous hardship in order to obtain some record in this book. There are lots of examples that I could share with you, but here's just one to illustrate the point. This woman, and I don't remember her name, and I really don't even care to know what her name is, but she once had the longest fingernails in the world. Those are fingernails that you're looking at coming out of her hands. It took her almost 30 years, 30 years to grow her nails out to the combined length of 28 feet, four and a half inches. Her right thumbnail was the longest, reaching a length of two feet, 11 inches. Only two feet, 11 inches. Sadly for her, though, her nails finally snapped off when she was in a car accident in 2009, ending her reign as the world record holder. One of the questions that's always come to my mind is, how did she take care of personal hygiene? I'm just kind of wondering, what are you devoting your life to? What's the consuming passion of your life? Hopefully it's something more meaningful than growing your fingernails. Well, by way of review, as we have been studying the letter of Philippians We looked at the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 3 last time. Word had gotten to Paul that some people had come into the church at Philippi who were teaching wrongly about Jesus Christ, about how a person enters into a relationship with God, about salvation, about how a person gets to heaven. These people were teaching that a person obtains salvation through the careful observation of religious rules and rites. In this case, the Jewish religion. To say it even more simply, they were teaching salvation is something that is earned as a reward for exceptionally good behavior. We noted that this same idea about how salvation is obtained, about how a person gets to heaven, is commonly held by people even in our own day. Many people today think that a person obtains salvation and goes to heaven as a reward for being a good person. Paul corrects this teaching, explaining that salvation can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ rather than being earned through good behavior. No one is good enough, long enough, to ever deserve salvation. Paul uses himself as an example of someone exceedingly qualified to earn salvation according to the rules given by these false teachers. But he came to realize that all of his religious accomplishments were as garbage, the word he uses here, in comparison to the qualifications, the righteousness that God gave him through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness, goodness, purity, qualifications for standing before God and entering into heaven, that is, a, that is a product of our own hard work and discipline. That kind of righteousness, it isn't perfect. No one 
can be good enough long enough. No matter how good we are, it's tainted. It's spoiled. There's always a fly in the ointment. It's worth noting that the best among us are also the first ones to acknowledge that this is true because they're the ones who are humble enough to say and admit to their shortcomings. Those who are the most full of themselves are usually the last to acknowledge their sin. The righteousness of God that He gives us, in contrast, is a perfect righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God declares us righteous even though we're not righteous in ourselves. We receive the benefits of the perfect righteousness of Jesus through faith. Imagine for a minute to kind of help illustrate some of this. Imagine a guy, average Joe, who works an average labor type job for an average wage, who through some very foolish decisions, he ends up owing the mob a billion dollars, billion with a B. There's no way that this guy will ever be able to pay that debt off and go free. Even winning the lottery would not be enough to pay off a debt of that size. The mob is going to be feeding him with a set of concrete shoes and throw him in the middle of a deep, dark lake. This guy has no hope of ever going free. Imagine, though, that Bill Gates, who has an estimated worth of around $110 billion, pays Joe's debt for him. He just gives the mob a billion dollars on behalf of Joe. Joe goes free. Is he a rich man? Not in himself, he isn't. The wealth that was used to pay his debt, it came from someone else. But Joe, he benefits from that wealth as if it were his own. In a similar way, the person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ receives the benefits of the righteousness of Jesus as if that were their own righteousness. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7, whatever, was, whatever, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. When Paul saw that God was off, what God was offering him through Jesus Christ, he realized that him hanging on to his own self-accomplished righteousness was pointless. It was as nothing in comparison to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's like a guy who has some pieces of charcoal that he spends his whole life trying to turn into diamonds the old-fashioned way by applying enough pressure and heat to cause the carbon in the charcoal to change into the crystalline structure that we know as diamonds. In spite of his best efforts, his charcoal remains charcoal. It, it might be some of the nicest looking charcoal. He's polished it. He's cleaned it perhaps. But it's still charcoal because he doesn't have the ability to do anything more with it. Then the Lord, he comes along 
and he offers to give him a truckload of the highest quality diamonds. All he has to do is put down the charcoal so that the Lord can put the diamonds in his hands. I wonder how many of us are hanging on to our chunks of charcoal, trying to turn them into diamonds through our own hard work. And the Lord is offering us diamonds, real diamonds of the highest quality. All we have to do is let go of the charcoal so that we can take hold of the diamonds that he wants to give us. It's the same kind of idea with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues in verse 10. He says this. He goes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to to the resurrection from the dead. When we become a Christian, it's not the end of a long journey finally arriving at some long-hoped destination. It's the beginning of a new life without end. It's like a person who has lived their whole life inside of a dark room where they have groped around searching for anything that might give them some purpose and meaning and direction. And then suddenly, Jesus Christ opens a door into that room, and we're invited to follow him out into the beautiful, bright, colorful world that extends farther than we can see in every direction. This new life will go on forever, literally, and we'll continue to discover more and more, never reaching the limits. Paul says, I want to know Christ. There's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. The idea of knowing being referred to here is not a mere acquiring of information. There's a connecting that takes place in knowing. It's experiential. There is a melding together of the one to be known and the one seeking to know. Genesis 4.1 provides an illustration for us to help kind of get our heads around this idea. It says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a child. The way the word know is used there, it helps us to see how this idea of knowing can have a much wider, deeper, intimate meaning than just acquiring information about someone. Are are you familiar with the saying, it matters who you know more than what you know? Well, that certainly is true when it comes to Jesus Christ. It matters that we know Jesus rather than simply know about Jesus In our culture, there are many people who know something about Jesus. I mean, some basic information about Jesus Christ is intertwined into the American culture. But knowing some stuff about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus Christ. Paul wants to know Jesus Christ in a deep, intimate way. He wants to know Jesus Christ in a life-transforming way. Paul wants to know Christ in an ever-deepening, ever-expanding way. That's part of the nature of knowing someone. Knowing is an ongoing experience. It's not like reading a book. When you get to the end of the book, you're done with it, and you might be able to say, well, I know that book. Knowing a person is a living, dynamic, progressing experience. Jesus Christ is of such a nature that we will never reach the limits of his vast and glorious person. Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. 
Paul is not talking only about being resurrected from the dead, although that is certainly an incredible thing for us to look forward to. He's also talking about having the power of the resurrected Christ working in him now. For, for the person who has come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we're brought to life in Christ. We're being brought to life in Christ. We are being brought to life through Christ, in Christ, for Christ. And we could say that we have been resurrected. We are being resurrected, and we will be resurrected. At present, we have the first fruits of this new resurrection life of Christ in us, but there is so much more to come. Paul, he encourages us to keep going forward in our new life, reaching for more and more of this new life, letting it grow more and more in us, becoming stronger and stronger in us, producing the beautiful fruit of righteousness in us, and to look forward to being finally and fully transformed to be like Jesus Christ. So we say we have been resurrected. We are being resurrected, and we will be resurrected. He says he wants to participate in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, nothing needs to be added to the suffering that Jesus Christ has endured for us. Christ's suffering was perfect and complete in securing our salvation. So there's no need for us to beat ourselves and somehow, you know, take suffering for Christ in that way. That's not what Paul is saying here. But in our becoming like Jesus in his resurrection and having this new life growing in us, there's also a dying to our old self taking place, setting us free from sin. Paul says, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He's not in doubt about being resurrected, but rather he eagerly is seeking the fullness of the resurrection in his life, and he looks forward to the moment of bodily resurrection. Think about this. Jesus Christ was the most complete human being who ever lived. He was entirely comfortable in his own skin. He was free from anxiety and insecurity. He was psychologically the healthiest person who ever lived. He was the most joyful and peaceful person who ever lived. He had control over his appetites and his desires. He had perfect self-control. He was kind and insightful. He was wise. He was strong and courageous. He had it together like no one else has ever had it together. Paul wants that same kind of complete, whole, full life. And so do we, don't we? The closer we draw to Jesus Christ, the more like Jesus Christ we become in all of these ways. Not just in moral character, but just healthy, man. To, to just be together in our head, in our heart, emotionally, our relationships. It all comes together as we grow in Christ. To know Jesus Christ is not to simply gain the promise of life after death. It, it's to become increasingly whole, complete, as God intends for us, having the resurrection life of Jesus growing in, growing in us, becoming more like Jesus now and forever. Verse 12. 
Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul wants us to understand that he's not already obtained the fullness of this new life. He's not already perfect in that way. In Christ, he is alive in a way that he has never been alive before. He's progressing more and more in this new life, becoming more and more alive as he knows Jesus Christ more and more. As he puts to death his old life and he embraces his new life more and more. But, but, but he's not arrived at his final destination yet. It says he presses on to take hold of the fullness of this new life for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of him. There's a familiar saying about religion that I'm sure a lot of you have heard before, that religion is humanity's attempt to reach God, where Christianity is God reaching down to humanity. Rather than working to convince God that we're worthy to be saved, through Jesus Christ, God has scooped us up in his arms as his child. And so Paul... He's no longer striving to prove his worth to God. Instead, God has given Paul worth in Christ. Paul is now striving to take hold of as much as he can of this new life that has been given to him. He's progressively taking hold of the one that has taken hold of him. Think about that. Christian, this is to be the essence of our life. We are to be progressively taking hold of Jesus Christ who has taken hold of us. He says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul uses the metaphor of a foot race. He says he keeps his eyes focused ahead rather than looking back over his shoulder. We don't want to ignore our past. That's not what Paul is saying here. There are important lessons that we have learned which we certainly don't want to have to relearn again. We want to remember those things. Sometimes understanding our past, where we've been, what we've been through, it, it helps us in moving forward in life. It's, so that this part of thinking about our past is helpful. But we don't want to dwell on our past. We don't want to live in the past. In our physical life, we may... S- see that our best days are behind us rather than in front of us. As we age, there is that brutal truth, that strength and vitality of our physical life. It peaks and then it diminishes. Our spiritual life is of a different nature, though. With our spiritual life, it's possible, it's possible to always be progressing forward. Our best days are always ahead of us. This is one of the reasons why we're told to put our greatest effort into the development of our spiritual life rather than our physical life. It holds promise not only for this life, but the life to come. You might remember, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.7, he says, Have nothing to do with godless men's and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 
For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. When running a race, what happens if we focus on what we have in the rearview mirror, if we look back where we have been rather than looking out where we're going? Well, we're going to crash. That's what's going to happen. We need to keep looking ahead. Life is ahead of us rather than behind us. Regret can be destructive and crippling. We, we can't stay in that place. We need to take hold of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has won for us. We can't move forward without that. We need to continue to trust Him with our future. His life is in us, even in the midst of our worst failures. It, and it's important that we remember that. His, his life is what brings healing and gives us strength to move forward again after we have experienced tremendous failure. You know, if it, if it weren't for believing and trusting that the Lord has not given up on me. I certainly would have given up on myself a long time ago. I've not given up because I know He's not given up on, on me. Verse 12, Paul said, We press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. Verse 7, verse 14, he says the, the same thing again. Really, He says, We press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And me trusting Him with my future, embracing His forgiveness, that enables me to press on. Verse 15 says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What Paul has been describing in this passage is the mindset that the growing follower of Jesus Christ should have. We're not perfect. We've stumbled. We will stumble. We've struggled and we will struggle with doing the right things for the right reasons. All of that but we have our eyes set on the finish line, the goal, the prize, taking hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. We are progressively taking hold of Jesus Christ who has taken hold of us. He says, if on some point you think differently, that too will God will make clear to you. Paul, he has stressed the importance of unity again and again in the letter of Philippians, and he does so here again. The spiritually mature, he says, they're the ones who have the responsibility for maintaining unity in the church. Rather than letting differences between us create division, we're to seek the Lord and trust Him to work things out if we're not in agreement on something. Based on what Paul writes in this letter, there were people choosing sides against each other in some way, allowing divisions to be created in the church at Philippi. No matter what these issues were, Paul says the mature believers are expected to work at maintaining unity in the church. And the same is true for us, isn't it? 
It doesn't matter what those divisions are. It's up to us to maintain that unity among us. We need to put these things aside and choose Jesus Christ as being more important than any of the other stuff going on. He says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. What is this that we've attained? This new life in Christ, which is already completely ours, although its full effects and benefits have not been fully realized perhaps in our life yet, we are seeking to take hold of it more and more, making it our goal, the thing that we already have. We're seeking to embrace it fully more and more all of the time. 17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul gave Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples to follow in chapter 2. Now he also gives himself as an example to follow. And we said then, and we'll say again now, find Jesus imitators and imitate them imitating Jesus. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. These enemies of the cross of Christ that Paul is talking about here, these are not just the false teachers that he confronted earlier in chapter 3. These are people who were claiming to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, and saying that because they are now free from the religious law, it didn't matter how they lived their life. These people, they were not pursuing the new life of Christ as Paul has described himself doing. These people have their minds on earthly things rather than the things of the Lord. We want to stay out of the ditch on both sides of the road, so to speak. We, we want to avoid the ditch on the one side of the road called religious legalism, and we get caught up trying to earn and deserve our salvation. And we want to also stay out of the ditch on the other side of the road called carnality, where we're not pursuing Christ's likeness in our life. Finally, he says in verse 20, He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He says our citizenship is in heaven. In contrast to those mentioned up in verse 19 who have their mind set on earthly things, we're to remember that we are part of another kingdom. The kingdom of God, which is deeper, richer, more meaningful, eternal. Don't lose sight of who you are and what you are, Christian. We have this wonderful promise that we have been given. Jesus is coming back to get us. And he's going to give us a new resurrection body like his. I love that verse in 1 John 3, 2, where John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know 
that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In closing today, it's been said many times, many ways, make your pursuit and passion in life to progressively take hold of Jesus Christ who has taken hold of you. Christian, if you need some motivation to pursue Jesus Christ with a renewed passion, I want you to remind yourself of that first time that you met Jesus Christ and he brought you to life. Think back to that moment. I I love the way E. Stanley Jones describes what that moment was like for him. Maybe that moment was similar for you. He said, when I met Christ, I felt like I had swallowed sunshine. Remember again what that was like and chase after your Jesus. Embrace him as he's taken hold of you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these good words that Paul has spoken to us. We thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you've taken hold of us, that you've reached into our broken, sinful, confused, aimless lives, and you gave us a new life, a rich, whole life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that we would make it our passion to take hold of this new life that you have given us. That we reach back toward you as you have already reached out and taken hold of us. Grow us, Lord, in Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen.